A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult, if not impossible, for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. Today, well, you know exactly what we have for you as world-renowned glaciologist Dr. Heidi Silvestra has graciously agreed to come back again this week and chat more. So without further ado, my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I'm sure you're as excited as I am to expand on last week's incredible conversation with Dr. Heidi Silvestra. Personally, I think her passion for ice rubbed off on me a bit as glaciers was all I could think about last weekend, including when I was mowing the yard, and I'm sure my family got a little tired of me talking about it. For now, though, back to the little island of Svalbard, where either all the discotheques are closed and Dr. Sylvester is just really bored, (laughs) or she truly loves talking about science research and climate change and really wants to further the climate conversation. To me... It really makes no difference, as either way, I am once again honored to say, Dr. Sylvestra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. Well, great to see you again. So excited about this conversation today, and uh, let's get on with this. Yeah, let's dive right in, and I want to pick up right where we left off last week. Now, for my listeners, if you happen to have forgotten, we ended our conversation discussing how the glaciers in the tropics have already reached their tipping point, and we should use them as a case study as to how to protect others that still have time, albeit not long. So with that, the question that was banging around in my head all weekend, Dr. Sylvestra, is if we actually get aggressive in addressing climate change, why can we not get back so many of these glaciers? Yeah, I think this is such an important question because it's touching upon this notion of tipping points. Um, tipping points, you know, are these, uh, you've talked a lot about this already, but are these temperature thresholds beyond which, you know, you enter really uncharted territory and, and the consequences you have triggered will become irreversible over very long timescales. So when we, when we look at Greenland, for example, I mean, Greenland is, is literally like six or seven times bigger than my country or France. So it's quite a big island. Uh, there's a lot of ice there. And, you know, if Greenland were to lose its ice completely, if the ice sheets were to disappear, it would increase sea levels by about, uh, let me think, in feet. Is it like 20, 25 feet? We have listeners all over the world, so meters is just fine. <laughs> Great. Yeah, six to seven meters. So, so Greenland is, at the moment the largest contributor to sea level rise. You know, it's 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 really losing a huge amount of ice into the ocean every year. So when it comes to the, the tipping point of the Greenland ice sheet, it seems to be around two degrees Celsius. Okay. So what will happen there if we were to cross this temperature threshold? We think of Greenland almost like a like a, a big balloon or a big pyramid. Greenland is, is very high up in elevation. The top of Greenland is above 3,000 meters. And oh, wow. elevation 
Elevation is really important because, I mean, the higher you go, the colder it is, right? That's yep. very important. And the altitude helps to preserve the ice because it, it's cold out there. But the problem is with Greenland, imagine again this balloon deflating more and more every year. I mean, this is what is happening currently to the Greenland ice sheet. It's losing more and more ice. The, the pyramid is getting flatter and flatter. Therefore, if we go beyond two degrees, the issue will be that the, the ice will be brought into much warmer temperatures, into much lower altitudes, and therefore it will be much warmer there. And this is a vicious cycle that you cannot stop. Once the ice is starting to deflate or lose elevation rapidly, eventually it will find itself into these warmer climates, into these warmer temperatures, and it will only melt faster and faster every year, catalyzing this process. And this is why, you know, when we go beyond this temperature threshold, we will not be able to stop this process. This will be beyond our control. And, you know, I wish we had a magic wand and we could just <laughs> absorb all the CO2 from the atmosphere and stop this. But we know that for Greenland, this tipping point is around two degrees. And perhaps I can talk about, you know, it, it's cousin uh, for the south in Antarctica. Yeah, absolutely. We know that Antarctica is... Antarctica is so much bigger than Greenland. You know, if, if Antarctica were to lose its ice completely, it would increase sea levels globally by 58 meters. So Antarctica is the mothership. It is giant and it can have a giant impact on our um, civilization as a whole. And we know that what's funny about this is Antarctica's tipping point is also between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. So we're getting very, very close to this. And for Antarctica, the process is actually slightly, slightly different. Imagine if Antarctica were to be like a bottle of champagne. You know, we, we love to talk about, about wines and champagne in France. Mm -hmm. And Antarctica is, is almost like a bottle of champagne. Imagine that all the ice on the continent is the champagne. Okay. But that there is there is something that protects the stability of this ice. There is some kind of dampener, um, which is the cork to the bottle of champagne. And the cork to the bottle of champagne in Antarctica are basically these Antarctic ice shelves. These Antarctic ice shelves are made of the continental ice, and the continental ice naturally flows over the ocean, over the Austral Ocean, and will basically, I mean, I know it sounds a little bit weird to have floating ice slowing down the motion of the continental ice, but this is what we see in Antarctica, that these ice shelves are stabilizing the continental ice and preventing too much ice from going from the continent into the ocean. Okay. So they're the, kind of like the cork to the bottle of champagne, but sadly, these ice shelves they are floating over an ocean that is getting warmer and warmer every year. They're also being attacked by warmer air temperatures, even down there in Antarctica. And what we're seeing is that these ice shelves are collapsing at the moment. We've already lost ice shelves on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is one of the warmest places in Antarctica. And what has happened following the collapse of these ice shelves were basically, well, all the ice that was stuck behind the cork behind these ice shelves was not stopped by anything anymore. I mean, the cork was just, you know, gone. 
So suddenly all this continental ice could very quickly flow into the ocean, contributing massively to sea level rise. And at the moment, quite a few Antarctic glaciologists are saying that we are getting very, I mean, dangerously close to the tipping points of Western Antarctica. And, and the Western part of Antarctica, the West Antarctic ice sheet, could increase sea levels globally by four to five meters if the ice shelves there were to collapse, were to disappear. Wow. So as you can see, I mean, all this ice, whether it's in the Arctic, Antarctica, is, is connected via these tipping points. And we must do really our utmost to, to avoid crossing these tipping points. It's, you know, our, our future depends on this. That it does. And I want to say your champagne cork analogy was bang on. That was absolutely perfect. And while I will always credit you with it, I am going to steal it because I really, really like that. Now, part of the crux I want to touch on today is on the social science side of things and specifically climate communication. So let's start just by having a bit of fun. And I'm going to put you on the spot. We discuss research papers a fair bit. Okay, well, a lot on this show. And the team and I do our best to find ways to make it approachable. But you are a master at this, much like your champagne cork analogy. And so I'm going to toss out a challenge and we'll see how you do. I'm going to just grab a paper here. Let's do, say, your 2018 paper, Tidewater Glacier Surges Initiated at the Terminus. Now, I know that one is a few years old at this point, but take that paper Make it approachable and tell me why your findings there are so important. Well, Brian, you know, I like a good challenge and thank you for putting me on the spot here. But this is a paper I care a lot about. So let me walk you through this study. Okay. Uh, my, my PhD was done here on Svalbard. And during my PhD, I was looking at a really special type of glaciers that we have a lot of up here, which are called surging glaciers. Surging glaciers are basically able to change behavior very, very quickly. They can go from being very slow moving, pretty dormant, you know, at a glacial mm -hmm. pace, very slow, to suddenly waking up and moving extremely rapidly. We've seen glaciers here suddenly switching behavior and moving at speeds of 30, 60 feet per day. So this can wow. be very, very fast. Um, so my PhD was all about trying to understand what is making these glaciers surge. And there must be something triggering this behavior. Well, for a very long time, up here in Svalbard, we've seen glaciers surging because they were simply too big. They were receiving a huge amount of snow. They were very, very thick. And if you have a very heavy glacier, where basically the ice at the base is being crushed under this huge amount of weight, and ice under pressure is ice that can melt very rapidly. So very quickly, these fat <laughs> glaciers would have a lot of water at their base, at the ice and bedrock interface. And this would make them suddenly accelerate and bring a lot of ice towards and, and into the ocean. So these glaciers could dramatically contribute to sea level rise because suddenly they were accelerating towards the water and bringing a lot of ice into the Arctic Ocean. I mean, this is what we thought was happening, but now Svalbard is 
the fastest warming place on earth. I mean, when you look at the glaciers around me, they're absolutely not fat. They're really struggling to accumulate snow, to accumulate ice, but they're still surging. So we were really puzzled by the fact that we're seeing glaciers that are dramatically unhealthy, dramatically thin, but they're still being pulled into surging. So we were wondering, okay, hang on, what's happening here? Let's do another police investigation. So we focused our interest on these tidewater glaciers, you know, you know what they're like, but these are the glaciers that are going all the way to sea level. And what we started to notice was something astonishing. Because these glaciers are at very low elevation, I mean, they start in the mountains really high up, but their tongue goes all the way to the ocean. We could see that because they had such low elevation, they were getting very, very thin close to the water. Very thin means that these glaciers were actually getting steeper and steeper and steeper because the lower part was melting much, much faster than the upper parts of the glacier. And the speed of a glacier is being dictated by how steep it is. Okay. So these glaciers were, I mean, out of their control, were being forced to get steeper and steeper. And therefore, they were slowly but surely moving a little bit faster and faster every year. And these glaciers were being basically stretched, were being pulled apart by the fact that one part of the glacier was a lot steeper than the other one. And it's a bit of a long story, but we're reaching the trigger point here. Yeah. The fact that these glaciers were being stretched and, and pulled apart, and, and you could see all these crevasses, all these fractures at the surface of the glacier, means that as soon as you have a lot of melt at the surface of the glacier, as soon as, as, soon as you have rain, that suddenly all this water can go from these the surface of the glacier into the crevasses to the very base of the ice. And then the same thing happens. You have a lot of water, a lot of water underneath the glacier and the glacier is being forced to accelerate. It's being dramatically lubricated and the glacier suddenly surges and brings a ton of ice into the ocean. And so what we're starting to see here is quite scary, is to see that actually climate change can make these glaciers change behavior and bring a lot more ice into the ocean. These glaciers cannot recover from this. Some of these glaciers lose 80% of their volume as really? the result of a surge. And what is very interesting here is that they are really completely changing our projections of future sea level rise. I mean, here on Svalbard, we've seen that one tidewater glacier when it was surging, was losing as much ice as all the other glaciers of the archipelago at the same time. Really? So one single glacier could completely change the contribution of Svalbard to sea level rise. And at the moment, Brian, despite my PhD, <laughs> we're still not able to say when glaciers are going to surge, how long the surge is going to be, and how much ice is going to be lost by these glaciers. So we need to do more work on this topic for sure. Brilliantly done. I knew you would absolutely crush it. And we should have you back to break down more papers for our listeners here on South of Two Degrees. <laughs> I'd love to. So the reason I wanted to challenge you with one of your own papers is because I want to dive into something that's 
pretty personal to me, and that's science communication. You are one of the absolute best research scientists out there in this realm, and sadly, what you are able to do so artfully is rare in the scientific world. You know, some scientists actually don't even want to communicate. So I have kind of a bifurcated question for you. Why is it so important you communicate scientific research? And do you ever worry that doing so will negatively impact your professional career? Yeah, I mean, I think communicating science is so very important. I mean, you know, this is what you do day in, day out. And and I really thank you for this because to me, science has no impact if it is not communicated. I mean, I'm going to be very blunt about this. Um, when I started my career in academia, and I genuinely thought my science would speak for itself. <laughs> and I know it sounds really naive now when I when I think about this, but I thought that my publications would be enough. Genuinely, mm-hmm. I thought that reports would be enough. And we can see today that it doesn't have the impact that it deserves, that we really need to go beyond these publications, beyond these reports. And, you know, I just have to speak to my parents or to my friends to see if they have read my paper from 2018. And of course they haven't, <laughs> because it's unreadable if you're not a scientist. and Or if you, even if you're not a glaciologist, it's very, very hard to read. And to me, you know, we're in such a dire situation today that it is kind of my my biggest challenge today to communicate science as as much as I can. Because, I mean, we can see that when people fully understand the scale of the challenge, when it really clicks in their heads and, and, and when they understand that they have a role to play in this, I mean, the first question people ask is, what can I do about this? Because I mean, now that I understand the problem, I want to do something about this. And so science has to be kind of the foundation to climate action. We need to make our science as accessible as we can to the civil society, to the companies, to the stakeholders, the decision makers. And this is the only way we will make sure that people make the right decisions, hopefully. And I think we are kidding ourselves if we, you know, the scientists believe that people really understand what's happening. And I see this day in, day out. You know, I get to speak to to ministers, governments, their team of climate negotiators. And, you know, they, they try their hardest, but they cannot read an IPCC report that is seven and a half thousand pages long. So I think we need to humanize science a lot more. To me, the best way we can communicate science is what we're doing today is, you know, from one human being to another and to share our emotions, to share our feelings. And this is absolutely not the way we are trained to communicate science as scientists. You're supposed to, of course, be very neutral and and not have an opinion about things. But today it is impossible to see, you know, the changes happening in the polar regions without feeling something about this. And, And to answer your question about whether or not I'm worried about, you know, being fired or, you know, <laughs> getting blamed for what I do. Well, I think we need to be a little bit more courageous than we are today about this. Um, I mean, what, what we're facing today is beyond beyond careers, is beyond a job. It's It's really the survival of humanity that is at stake. And I truly believe that you know, the future will remember us on whether or not we tried to stop this. And 
us, you know, the scientists, we are we are at, right at the beginning of this food chain of climate action. And if we're not the ones fighting so very hard for what we're seeing in the field and for what we believe in, why should people care? Why should people be motivated to act? So I think, you know, of course, you know, I get, you know, sometimes some comments <laughs> about what I do. We all do. <laughs> we all do. But I think it is absolutely worth it. And, you know, whether I'm, I'm fired or not, you know, I think, I think it's absolutely worth it. And we need to continue doing this. I can't tell you how much it means to me to hear you say that because this is a critical thing and you are a phenomenal example to other scientists as to how and what we should be doing. I mean, I know there are many nerds out there like me that think a glass of bourbon and a good scientific paper is a perfect evening. <laughs> I, I know that's not what most people enjoy. So it's imperative that within the scientific community, we all learn to do this better. So let me ask you this. What needs to change in the academic world to better address this? Yeah. And, and you know, this is this is the biggest thing. How do we fix this? How do we yeah. really encourage it and motivate um, even early career scientists to, to be out there and to make their science accessible? I think one of the big issues is, first of all, short-term contracts. You know what academia is about uh, when you are done with your PhD and then you your career begins, truly begins. You often start with really short-term contracts, you know, for a year or two years. And the last thing you want to do is make waves. Absolutely. You know, you, you just want to stay in your lane, write publications, do the work that is being asked of you, and that's it. And you want to move on. And that that's a big issue. And I think, you know, giving giving early career scientists longer term contracts where, you know, with which they could thrive in is, is very important. Second thing to improve is how we rate the work of scientists. You know, if, if I wanted to be an, a, a professor in glaciology and, and eventually become emeritus and be out there, you know, at the top of the pyramid, all that is being asked of me is to write publications. So publications in you know, the Journal of Geophysical Research, the Journal of Glaciology, Science, Nature. This is all that would matter for my career. And, you know, I would I could very much just continue writing papers and make sure, you know, I'm writing decent papers that have an impact on my community. And whether they have an impact on the world or not actually doesn't matter, believe it or not. You know, you're not being rated on your impact on society. What matters is your impact on your community of scientists. And we need to give more value to outreach, to science, science communication. It's happening. Slowly but surely, it is happening. But we are, I think, light years away to where we should be. And that really, I think, the ones who could change this are the funding agencies. Okay. Because, you know, as a scientist, we're always looking for funding to do our research and you know, now, every time you ask for funding, you are being required to do outreach, which is great. I mean, it, it's finally here. But we need to really evaluate this outreach. Is opening a web page that will never be updated good enough? I don't think so. <laughs> I think yeah. we need to really force the scientists to, to physically get out there 
you know, have a proactive outreach, meet with classrooms, meet with companies, meet with the decision makers. This is the way we're going to change things. But we need to give the scientists enough time, enough trust, enough protection to do this. Because at the moment, I don't think that all the conditions are reunited to be able to have an effective science communication. I agree completely. And to me, I think we need to even go as far as making communication classes part of the academic requirements within the natural sciences. So new scientists are more comfortable with this and it isn't as much of a hurdle for them. All that said, I want to come back to you and your outreach because you have an incredible book that just came out. I do. I do. I, I'm, you know, I'm so excited about this and I, I really think that. We need to use all the tools available to to make our science exciting, more um, more approachable, more digestible, and and writing books is something uh, very very new to me. I find the whole process very intimidating, but I was lucky to be able to collaborate with Harper France mm -hmm. in my beautiful country, and, and they were so. Um, you know, they really entrusted me in, in, in writing a story and, and sharing science through the art of storytelling. And the book is all about expeditions, you know, in the Arctic and Antarctica, in the tropical glaciers and trying to, to motivate people to act. And I really, really hope that people will resonate with the book. We'll also uh, connect with these really alien things that are glaciers and, and really start caring about them enough to be motivated to act. But I really hope that, you know, people will, will be able to connect with the glaciers when they read the book. And where would our listeners go to find a copy of that? Yeah, I think the best uh, the best way is to go on Harper on the Harper website. Okay. Uh, at the moment, the book uh, will be first released in French, but uh, let's hope you know if it has enough success that it will be translated into different languages. Or if people ask for it, we will certainly do that. Uh, but also, people can directly contact me. Uh, I'm available on on pretty much all social media platform, and I would be very happy to guide them to find the book. All right. I'm going to need you to go back to them and really impress upon them the need for an English version, because I would love to read this book. I'll get that sorted. I'll get that sorted. <laughs> Great. Because my French is terrible. Um, I know we're running short on time. So just a few quick questions before we wrap up, where can folks find out more about you, your work, or maybe even the latest expedition you're on? Yeah. I think the best uh, platform is probably my website, HeidiSylvester.com. But also I love playing with, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And, you know, I love sharing stories of what it's like to be in the field on these platforms. Like last night I was exploring an ice cave in Svalbard and I tried to record as many videos as I could so that people could really understand what it feels like to go and explore the belly of a glacier. Um, so, I, you know, I love sharing the science that I do out there. And even more so, I love interacting with people on these platforms. And I think it's so very important that people, you know, dare to ask questions, to really engage. And like what you did today, you know, challenge me to try to explain one of my latest publications. So please, please don't hesitate to go out there and ask me tons of questions about the latest science on glaciers. Now, I have to say one of my absolute favorite bits on your website is under your FAQs. 
And your very first question under the FAQs is, can I join you on your expeditions? Do you, do you get that a lot? I mean, I, maybe I'm just not as charismatic or entertaining apparently, but I usually have to beg somebody to come with me when I want to go to the mountains or go, go rock climbing. So I'm curious for it to elevate to the very first question. How, how often does that come up? Brian, I get this every day. <laughs> I get this question every day. I mean, this is so sweet. I I love receiving this question, you know, from from budding scientists to older scientists or just people who would love to uh, accompany me in the field. And, you know, I was like this when I was younger. I just wanted to join all the expeditions mm-hmm. out there. And I wish, I wish I could take all these people with me. But as you know, these expeditions are more often than not, very expensive, you know, very remote. And I like to take with me people who I deeply trust and and, and that I know I like the back of my hands. Um, so eventually, you know, I think this year I will try to incorporate more people who have perhaps a little bit less experience in these environments, starting with, you know, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the Pyrenees this summer, but also wow. in the European Alps. And I think these mountains will allow a little bit more flexibility in the people who can join me. And I would really encourage people to just continue sending me these questions because eventually I think we'll manage to create a bigger team to join me in the field. (laughs) That's fantastic. Now, to wrap up, I've heard you quote a Senegalese environmentalist, uh, Baba Dion, before, who said, in the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand, and we will understand only what we are taught. And I can't think of anyone who embodies that more than you in the incredible work you do. So on behalf of all our listeners, thank you for coming back on the show today, teaching us, helping us to understand, and ultimately opening our eyes as to why we should love ice as much as you do. I really enjoy this. Thank you, Brian. Well, Thanks for taking me up on the invite to come on the show. And uh, to my listeners, go get Dr. Sylvester's book if you speak French. And we'll be sure to mention it here on the show when it becomes available in English or any other language. It was time. It was about time. And I'm so glad you sent me this, uh, this email and this invitation. I really, really enjoyed it and really appreciate all the work that you do. I mean, I think we're... Uh, We're in this together. (laughs) And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you've enjoyed this special conversation with not only one of the world's leading glaciologists, but also one of the foremost scientific communicators out there, Dr. Heidi Silvestra. And while you won't be going on an expedition with her soon, make sure you get out into the mountains and learn to love those majestic glaciers. Now, aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Do this for me. Please tell someone else about the show within the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.